Chapter Four of the Red Room by August Strindberg, translated by Ellie Schlesner. Recording by William Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, Master and Dogs. Two or three days had passed. Mrs. Charles Nicholas Falk, a lady of twenty-two years of age, had just finished her breakfast in bed the colossal mahogany bed in the large bedroom. It was only ten o'clock. Her husband had been away since seven, taking up flax on the shore, but the young wife had not stayed in bed, a thing she knew to be contrary to the rules of the house, because she counted on his absence. She had only been married for two years, but during that period she had found abundant time to introduce sweeping reforms in the old, conservative, middle-class household, where everything was old, even the servants. He had invested her with the necessary power on the day on which he had confessed his love to her, and she had graciously consented to become his wife, that is to say, permitted him to deliver her from the hated bondage of her parental roof, where she had been compelled to get up every morning at six o'clock and work all day long. She had made good use of the period of her engagement, for it was then that she had collected a number of guarantees promising her a free, independent life, unmolested by any interference on the part of her husband. Of course, these guarantees consisted merely of verbal assurances made by a lovesick man, but she, who had never allowed her emotion to get the better of her, had carefully noted them down on the tablets of her memory. After two years of matrimony, unredeemed by the promise of a child, the husband showed a decided inclination to set aside all these guarantees, and question her right to sleep as long as she liked, for instance, to have breakfast in bed, etc., etc. He had even been so indelicate as to remind her that he had pulled her out of the mire, had delivered her from a hell, thereby sacrificing himself. The marriage had been a misalliance, her father being one of the crew of the flagship. As she lay there, she was concocting replies to these and similar reproaches and as her common sense during the long period of their mutual acquaintance had never been clouded by any intoxication of the senses, she had it well in hand and knew how to use it. The sounds of her husband's return filled her with unalloyed pleasure. Presently the dining-room door was slammed. A tremendous bellowing became audible. She pushed her head underneath the bedclothes to smother her laughter. Heavy footsteps crossed the adjacent room and the angry husband appeared on the threshold, hat on head. His wife, who was turning her back to him, called out in her most dulcet tones, "'Is that you, little lubber? Come in, come in!' The little lubber? This was a pet name, and husband and wife frequently used others, even more original ones, showed no inclination to accept her invitation, but remained standing in the doorway and shouted, why isn't the table laid for lunch? Ask the girls. It isn't my business to lay the table, but it's customary to take off one's hat on coming into the room, sir. What have you done with my cap? Burn it. It was so greasy, you ought to have been ashamed to wear it. You burn it? We'll talk about that later on. Why are you lying in bed until all hours of the morning instead of supervising the girls? Because... I like it. 
Do you think I married a wife to have her refusing to look after her house? What? You did. But why do you think I married you? I've told you a thousand times so that I shouldn't have to work, and you promised me I shouldn't. Didn't you? Can you swear, on your word of honor, that you did not promise? That's the kind of man you are. You are just like all the rest. It was long ago. Long ago? When was long ago? Is a promise not binding for all times, or must it be made in any particular season? The husband knew this unanswerable logic only too well, and his wife's good temper had the same effect as her tears. He gave in. I'm going to have visitors tonight, he stated. Oh, indeed. Gentlemen? Of course. I detest women. Well, I suppose you've ordered what you want. No, I want you to do that. I? I've no money for entertaining. I shall certainly not spend my housekeeping money on your visitors. No, you prefer spending it on dress and other useless things. Do you call the things I make for you useless? Is a smoking cap useless? Are slippers useless? Tell me, tell me candidly. She was an adept in formulating her questions in such a way that the reply was bound to be crushing for the person who had to answer them. She was merely copying her husband's method. If he wanted to avoid being crushed, he was compelled to keep changing the subject of conversation. But I really have a very good reason for entertaining a few guests tonight, he said with a show of emotion. My old friend Fritz Levin of the post office has been promoted after nineteen years of service. I read it in the Postal Gazette last night, but as you disapprove and as I always give way to you, I shall let the matter drop and shall merely ask Levin and Schoolmaster Nystrom to a little supper in the counting-house. So that loafer Levin has been promoted. I never. Perhaps now he'll pay back all the money he owes you. I hope so. I can't understand how on earth you can have anything to do with that man and the schoolmaster. Beggars, both of them, who hardly own the clothes they wear. I say, old girl, I never interfere in your affairs. Leave my business alone. If you have guests downstairs, I don't see why I shouldn't have friends up here. Well, why don't you? All right, little lubber. Give me some money, then. The little lubber, in every respect pleased with the turn matters had taken, obeyed with pleasure. How much? I've very little cash today. Oh, fifty will do. Are you mad? Mad? Give me what I asked for. Why should I starve when you feast? Peace was established, and the party separated with mutual satisfaction. There was no need for him to lunch badly at home. He was compelled to go out. No necessity to eat a poor dinner and be made uncomfortable by the presence of ladies. He was embarrassed in the company of women, for he had been a bachelor too long. No reason to be troubled by his conscience, for his wife would not be alone at home. As it happened, she wanted to invite her own friends and be rid of him. It was worth fifty crowns. As soon as her husband had gone, Mrs. Falk rang the bell. She had stayed in bed all morning to punish the housemaid, for the girl had remarked that in the old days everybody used to be up at seven. 
She asked for paper and ink and scribbled a note to Mrs. Holman, the controller's wife who lived in the house opposite. Dear Evelyn, the letter ran, Come in this evening and have a cup of tea with me. We can then discuss the statues of the Association for the Rights of Women. Possibly a bazaar or amateur theatricals would help us on. I am longing to set the association going. It is an urgent need, as you so often said. I feel it very deeply when I think about it. Do you think that her ladyship would honor my house at the same time? Perhaps I ought to call on her first. Come and fetch me at twelve, and we'll have a cup of chocolate at a confectioner's. My husband is away. Yours affectionately, Eugenia. P.S. My husband is away. When she had dispatched the letter, she got up and dressed, so as to be ready at twelve. It was evening. The eastern end of Long Street was already plunged in twilight when the clock of the German church struck seven. Only a faint ray of light from Pig Street fell into Falk's flax shop, as Anderson made ready to close it for the night. The shutters in the counting-house had already been fastened, and the gas was lighted. The place had been swept and straightened. Two hampers with protruding necks of bottles, sealed red and yellow, some covered with tinfoil, others wrapped in pink tissue paper, were standing close to the door. The center of the room was taken up by a table covered with a white cloth. On it stood an Indian bowl and heavy silver candelabrum. Nicholas Falk paced up and down. He was wearing a black frock coat and had a respectable as well as a festive air. He had a right to look forward to a pleasant evening. He had arranged it. He had paid for it. He was in his own house and at his ease, for there were no ladies present and his invited guests were of caliber which justified him in expecting from them not only attention and civility, but a little more. They were only two, but he did not like many people. They were his friends, reliable, devoted as dogs, submissive, agreeable, always flattering, and never contradicting him. Being a man of means, he could have moved in better circles. He might have associated with his father's friends, and he did so twice a year but he was of too despotic a nature to get on with them. It was three minutes past seven, and still the guests had not arrived. Falk began to show signs of impatience. When he invited his henchmen, he expected them to be punctual to the minute. The thought of the unusually sumptuous arrangement, however, and the paralyzing impression it was bound to make, helped him to control his temper a little longer. At the lapse of a few more moments, Fritz Levin, the post office official, put in an appearance. Good evening, brother. Oh, I say. He paused in the action of divesting himself of his overcoat, and feigned surprise at the magnificent preparations. He almost seemed in danger of falling on his back with sheer amazement. The seven-armed candlestick in the tabernacle, good Lord, he ejaculated, catching sight of the hampers. The individual who delivered this well-rehearsed witticisms while taking off his overcoat was a middle-aged man of the type of the government official of twenty years ago. His whiskers joined his mustache, his hair was parted at the side and arranged in a couped event. He was extremely pale and as thin as a shroud. In spite of being well-dressed, he was shivering with cold and seemed to have secret traffic with poverty. Falk's manner in welcoming him was both rude and patronizing. It was partly intended to express his scorn of flattery more particularly from an individual like the newcomer, and partly to intimate that the newcomer enjoyed the privilege of his friendship. 
by way of congratulation he began to draw a parallel between levin's promotion and his own father's receiving a commission in the militia well it's a grand thing to have the royal mandate in one's pocket isn't it my father too received the royal mandate pardon me dear brother but i've only been appointed appointed or royal mandate it comes to the same thing don't teach me my father too had a royal mandate i assure you assure me what do you mean by that do you mean to imply that i'm standing here telling lies tell me do you mean to say that i'm lying of course not there's no need to lose your temper like that very well you're admitting that i'm not telling lies consequently you have a royal mandate why do you talk such nonsense my father the pale man in whose wake a drove of fury seemed to have entered the counting-house for he trembled in every limb now rushed at his patron firmly resolved to get over with his business before the feast began so that nothing should afterwards disturb the general enjoyment help me he groaned with despair of a drowning man taking a bill out of his pocket falk sat down on the sofa shouted for anderson ordered him to open the bottles and began to mix the bowl help you haven't i helped you before he replied haven't you borrowed from me again and again without paying me back answer me what have you got to say i know brother that you have always been kindness itself to me and now you've been promoted haven't you everything was to be all right now all debts were to be paid a new life was to begin i've listened to this kind of talk for eighteen years what salary do you draw now twelve hundred crowns instead of eight hundred as before but now think of this the cost of the mandate was one hundred and twenty-five the pension fund deducts fifty that makes one hundred and seventy-five where am i to take it from but the worst of all is this my creditors have seized half my salary consequently i have now only six hundred crowns to live on instead of eight hundred and i've waited nineteen years for that promotion is a splendid thing why did you get into debt one ought never to get into debt never get into debt with a salary of eight hundred crowns all these years how was it possible to keep out of it in that case you had no business to be in the employ of the government but this is a matter which doesn't concern me doesn't concern me won't you sign once more for the last time you know my principles i never sign bills please let the matter drop levin who was evidently used to these refusals calmed down at the same moment schoolmaster nystrom entered and to the relief of both parties interrupted the conversation he was a dried-up individual of mysterious appearance and age his occupation too was mysterious he was supposed to be a master at a school in one of the southern suburbs nobody ever asked which school and he did not care to talk about it his mission so far as falk was concerned was first to be addressed as schoolmaster when there were other people present secondly to be polite and submissive thirdly to borrow a little every now and then never exceeding a fiver it was one of falk's fundamental needs that people should borrow money from him occasionally only a little of course and fourthly to write verses on festive occasions and the latter was not the least of the component parts of his mission charles nicholas falk sat enthroned on his leather sofa very conscious of the fact that it was his leather sofa surrounded by his staff 
or his dogs, as one might have said. Levin found everything splendid. The bowl, the glasses, the ladle, the cigars. The whole box had been taken from the mantelpiece. The matches, the ashtrays, the bottles, the corks, the wire, everything. The schoolmaster looked content. He was not called upon to talk. The other two did that. He was merely required to be present as a witness in case of need. Falk was the first to raise his glass and drink. Nobody knew to whom, but the schoolmaster, believing it to be the hero of the day, produced his verses and began to read. To Fritz Levin on the day of his promotion. Falk was attacked by a violent cough which disturbed the reading and spoiled the effect of the wittiest points. But Nystrom, who was a shrewd man and had foreseen this, had introduced into his poem the finely felt and finely expressed reflection. What would have become of Fritz Levin if Charles Nicholas hadn't befriended him? This subtle hint at the numerous loans made by Falk to his friend soothed the cough. It subsided and ensured a better reception to the last verse, which was quite impudently dedicated to Levin, a tactlessness which again threatened to disturb the harmony. Falk emptied his glass as if he were draining a cup filled to the brim with ingratitude. "'You're not up to the mark, Nystrom,' he said. "'No, he was far wittier on your thirty-eighth birthday,' agreed Levin, guessing what Falk was driving at. Falk's glance penetrated into the most hidden recesses of Levin's soul, trying to discover whether any lie or fraud lay hidden there, and as his eyes were blinded by pride, he saw nothing. "'Quite true!' he acquiesced. I never heard anything more witty in all my life. It was good enough to be printed. You really ought to get your things printed. I say, Nystrom, surely you know it by heart, don't you? Nystrom had a shocking memory, or, to tell the truth, he had not yet had enough wine to commit the suggested outrage against decency and good form. He asked for time. But Falk, irritated by his quiet resistance, had gone too far to turn back, and insisted on his request. He was almost sure he had a copy of the verses with him. He searched his pocket-book, and behold, there they lay. Modesty did not forbid him to read them aloud himself. It would not have been for the first time, but it sounded better for another to read them. The poor dog bit his chain, but it held. He was a sensitive man, this schoolmaster, but he had to be brutal if he did not want to relinquish the precious gift of life, and he had been very brutal. The most private affairs were fully and openly discussed. Everything in connection with the birth of this hero, his reception into the community, his education and upbringing were made fun of. The verses would have disgusted even Falk himself if they had treated of any other person, but the fact of their celebrating him and his doings made them excellent. When the recitation was over, his health was drunk uproariously. In many glasses, for each member of the little party, felt that he was too sober to keep his real feelings under control. The table was now cleared, and an excellent supper consisting of oysters, birds, and other good things was served. Falk went sniffing from dish to dish, sent one or two of them back, took care that the chill was taken off the stout, and that the wines were the right temperature. Now his dogs were called upon to do their work and offer him a pleasant spectacle. When everybody was ready, he pulled out his gold watch and held it in his hand, while he jestingly asked a question which his convives had heard many times, so very many times. 
What is the time by the silver watches of the gentlemen? The anticipated reply came in duty-bound, accompanied by gay laughter. The watches were at the watchmakers. This put Falk into the best of tempers, which found expression in the not-at-all-unexpected joke. The animals will be fed at eight. He sat down, poured out three liqueurs, took one, and invited his friends to follow his example. I must make a beginning myself, as you both seem to be holding back. Don't let's stand on ceremony. Tuck in, boys. The feeding began. Charles Nicholas was not particularly hungry, had plenty of time to enjoy the appetite of his guests, and he continually urged them to eat. An unspeakably benevolent smile radiated from his bright, sunny countenance as he watched their zeal, and it was difficult to say what he enjoyed more the fact of their having a good meal, or the fact of their being so hungry. He sat there like a coachman on his box, clicking his tongue and cracking his whip at them. "'Eat, Nystrom. You don't know when you will get a next meal. Help yourself, Levin. You look as if you could do a little flesh on your bones. Are you grinning at the oysters? Aren't they good enough for a fellow like you? What do you say? Take another. Don't be shy. What do you say? You've had enough?' nonsense have a drink now take some stout boys now a little salmon you shall take another piece by the lord harry you shall go on eating why the devil don't you it costs you nothing when the birds had been carved charles nicholas poured out the claret with a certain solemnity the guests paused anticipating a speech the host raised his glass smelt the bouquet of the wine and said with profound gravity your health you hogs nystrom responded by raising his glass and drinking but levin left his untouched looking as if he were secretly sharpening a knife when supper was over levin strengthened by food and drink his senses befogged by the fumes of the wine began to nurse a feeling of independence a strong yearning for freedom stirred in his heart his voice grew more resonant he pronounced his words with increasing assurance and his movements betrayed greater ease. "'Give me a cigar,' he said in a commanding tone. "'No, not a weed like these, a good one.' Charles Nicholas, regarding his words as a good joke, obeyed. "'Your brother isn't here tonight,' remarked Levin casually. There was something ominous and threatening in his voice. Falk felt it and became uneasy. "'No,' he said shortly, but his voice was unsteady. Levin waited for a few moments before striking a second blow. One of his most lucrative occupations was his interference in other people's business. He carried gossip from family to family, sowed a grain of discord here and another there, merely to play the grateful part of the mediator afterwards. In this way he had obtained a great deal of influence, was feared by his acquaintances, and managed them as if they were marionettes. Falk felt this disagreeable influence and attempted to shake it off, but in vain. Levin knew how to whet his curiosity, and by hinting at more than he knew, he succeeded in bluffing people into betraying their secrets. At the present moment, Levin held the whip, and he promised himself to make his oppressor feel it. He was still merely playing with it, but Falk was waiting for the blow. He tried to change the subject of conversation. He urged his friends to drink, and they drank. Levin grew whiter and colder as his intoxication increased, and went on playing with his victim. "'Your wife 
has visitors this evening, he suddenly remarked. How do you know? asked Falk, taken back. I know everything, answered Levin, showing his teeth. It was almost true. His widely extended business connections compelled him to visit as many public places as possible, and there he heard much. Not only the things which were spoken of in his society, but also those which were discussed by others. Falk was beginning to feel afraid without knowing why, and he thought it best to divert the threatening danger. He became civil, humble even, but Levin's boldness still increased. There was no alternative. He must make a speech, remind his companions of the cause of the gathering, acknowledge the hero of the day. There was no other escape. He was a poor speaker, but the thing had to be done. He tapped against the bowl, filled the glasses, and recollecting an old speech made by his father when Falk became his own master, he rose and began very slowly. Gentlemen, I have been my own master these eight years. I was only thirty years old. The change from a sitting position to a standing one caused a rush of blood to his head. He became confused. Levin's mocking glances added to his embarrassment. His confusion grew. The figure thirty seemed something so colossal that it completely disconcerted him. Did I say thirty? I didn't mean it. I was in my father's employ for many years. It would take too long to recount everything I suffered during those years. It's the common lot. Perhaps you think me selfish. Here, here, groaned Nystrom, who was resting his heavy head on the table. Levin puffed the smoke of his cigar in the direction of the speaker, as if he were spitting into his face. Falk, really intoxicated now, continued his speech. His eyes seemed to seek a distant goal without being able to find it. Everybody is selfish, we all know that. Yes, my father, who made a speech when I became my own master, as I was just saying. He pulled out his gold watch and took it off the chain. The two listeners opened their eyes wide. Was he going to make a present of it to Levin? Handed me on that occasion this gold watch which he, in his turn, had received from his father in the year. Again those dreadful figures. He must refer back. This gold watch, gentlemen, was presented to me, and I cannot think without emotion of the moment when I received it. Perhaps you think I'm selfish, gentlemen. I'm not. I know it's not good form to speak of oneself, but on such an occasion as this it seems very natural to glance at the past. I only want to mention one little incident. He had forgotten Levin and the significance of the day, and was under the impression that he was celebrating the close of his bachelor life. All of a sudden he remembered the scene between himself and his brother and his triumph. He felt a pressing need to talk of this triumph but he could not remember the details. He merely remembered having proved that his brother was a blackguard. He had forgotten the chain of evidence with the exception of only two facts, his brother and a blackguard. He tried to link them together, but they always fell apart. His brain worked incessantly, and picture followed on picture. He must tell them of a generous action he had done. He recollected that he had given his wife some money in the morning, and had allowed her to sleep as long as she liked and have breakfast in bed, but that wasn't a suitable subject. He was in an unpleasant position, but fear of the silence and the two pairs of sharp eyes which followed his every movement helped him to pull himself together. He realized that he was still standing, watch in hand. 
The watch? How had it got into his hand? Why were his friends sitting down, almost blotted out by the smoke, while he was on his legs? Oh, of course, he had been telling them about the watch, and they were waiting for the continuation of the story. This watch, gentlemen, is nothing special at all. It's only French gold. The two Willem owners of silver watches opened their eyes wide. This information was new to them. And I believe it has only seven rubies. It's not a good watch at all. On the contrary, I shall rather call it a cheap one. Some secret cause of which his brain was hardly conscious made him angry. He must vent his wrath on something. Tapping the table with his watch, he shouted, "'It's a damn bad watch, I say. Listen to me when I'm speaking. Don't you believe what I say, Fritz? Answer me. Why do you look so vicious? You don't believe me? I can read it in your eyes, Fritz. You don't believe what I'm saying. Believe me, I know human nature, and I might stand security for you once more.' Either you are a liar, or I am. Shall I prove to you that you are a scoundrel? Shall I? Listen, Nystrom, if I forge a bill, am I a scoundrel? Of course you're a scoundrel. The devil take you, answered Nystrom without a moment's hesitation. Yes, yes. His efforts to remember whether Levin had forged a bill, or was in any way connected with a bill, were in vain. Therefore he was obliged to let the matter drop, Levin was tired. He was also afraid that his victim might lose consciousness, and that he and Nystrom would be robbed of the pleasure of enjoying his intended discomfiture. He therefore interrupted Falk with a jest in his host's own style. "'Your health, old rascal!' And down came the whip. He produced a newspaper. "'Have you seen the people's flag?' he asked Falk in a cold, murderous accent. Falk stared at the scandalous paper but said nothing. The inevitable was bound to happen. It contains a splendid article on the board of payment of employees' salaries. Falk's cheeks grew white. Rumor has it that your brother wrote it. It's a lie. My brother's no scandal-monger. He isn't, do you hear? But unfortunately he has to suffer for it. I'm told he's been sacked. It's a lie. I'm afraid it's true. Moreover, I saw him dining today at the Brass Button with a rascally-looking chap. I'm sorry for the lad. It was the worst blow that could have befallen Charles Nicholas. He was disgraced. His name, his father's name, was dishonored. All that the old Burgesses had achieved had been in vain. If he had been told that his wife had died, he could have borne up under it. A financial loss, too, might have been repaired. If he'd been told that his friend Levin, or Nystrom, had been arrested for forgery, he would have disowned them, for he had never shown himself in public in their company. But he could not deny his relationship to his brother, and his brother had disgraced him. There was no getting away from the fact. Levin had found a certain pleasure in retailing his information. Falk, although he had never given his brother the smallest encouragement, was in the habit of boasting of him and his achievements to his friends. My brother, the assessor, is a man of brains, and he'll go far. Mark my words. These continual indirect reproaches had long been a source of irritation to Levin, more particularly as Charles Nicholas drew a definite, unsurpassable, although indefinable, line between assessors and secretaries. 
Levin, without moving a finger in the matter, had had his revenge at so little cost to himself that he could afford to be generous and play the part of the comforter. There's no reason why you should take it so much to heart. Even a journalist can be a decent specimen of humanity, and you exaggerate the scandal. There can be no scandal where no definite individuals have been attacked. Moreover, the whole thing's very witty, and everybody's reading it. This last pill of comfort made Falk furious. He robbed me of my good name. My name. How can I show myself tomorrow at the exchange? What will people say? By people he met his wife. She would enjoy the situation because it would make the misalliance less marked. Henceforth they would be on the same social level. The thought was intolerable. A bitter hatred for all mankind took possession of his soul. If only he had been the bastard's father, then he could have made use of his parental privilege, washed his hands of him, cursed him, and so have put an end to the matter. But there was no such thing as brotherly privilege. Was it possible that he himself was partly to blame for the disgrace? Had he not forced his brother into his profession? Maybe the scene of the morning or his brother's financial difficulties caused by him were to blame. No! He had never committed a base action. He was blameless. He was respected and looked up to. He was no scandal-monger. He had never been sacked by anybody. Did he not carry a paper in his pocketbook, testifying that he was the kindest friend with the kindest heart? Had not the schoolmaster read it aloud a little while ago? Yes, certainly. And he sat down to drink, drink immoderately, not to stupefy his conscience. There was no necessity for that. He had done no wrong but merely to drown his anger. But it was no use. It boiled over, and scalded those who sat nearest to him. Drink, you rascals! That brute there's asleep, and you call yourselves friends? Waken him up, Levin! Whom are you shouting at? asked the offended Levin peevishly. At you, of course. Two glances were exchanged across the table, which promised no good. Falk, whose temper improved directly when he saw another man in a rage, poured a ladleful of the contents of the bowl on the schoolmaster's head, so that it trickled down his neck behind his collar. "'Don't dare do that again,' threatened Levin. "'Who's to prevent me?' "'I. Yes, I. I shan't let you ruin his clothes. It's a beastly shame.' "'His clothes?' laughed Falk. "'Isn't it my coat? Didn't I give it to him?' "'You're going too far,' said Levin, rising to go. "'So you're going to go now?' You've had enough to eat? You can't drink any more? You don't want me any longer tonight? Didn't you want to borrow a fiver? What, am I to be deprived of the honor of lending you some money? Didn't you want me to sign something? Sign? Eh? At the word sign, Levin pricked up his ears, supposing he tried to get the better of him in his excited condition. The thought softened him. Don't be unjust, brother, he recommended. I'm not ungrateful. I fully appreciate your kindness, but I'm poorer, poorer than you've ever been, or ever can be. I've suffered humiliations which you can't even conceive, but I've always looked upon you as a friend. I mean a friend in the highest sense of the word. You've had too much to drink tonight, and so you're cross. This makes you unjust, but I assure you, gentlemen, in the whole world there beats no kinder heart than that of Charles Nicholas and I don't say this for the first time. I thank you for your courtesy tonight, 
that is to say if the excellent supper we have eaten the magnificent wines we have drunk have been eaten and drunk in my honour i thank you brother and drink your health here's to you brother charles nicholas thank you thank you a thousand times you've not done it in vain mark my words strange to say these words spoken in a tremulous voice tremulous with emotion produced good results falk felt good hadn't he again been assured that he had a kind heart he firmly believed it the intoxication had reached the sentimental stage they moved nearer together they talked of their good qualities of the wickedness of the world the warmth of their feelings the strength of their good intentions they grasped each other's hands falk spoke of his wife of his kindness to her he regretted the lack of spirituality in his calling he mentioned how painfully aware he was of his want of culture he said that his life was a failure and after the consumption of his tenth liqueur he confided to levin that it had been his ambition to go into the church become a missionary even they grew more and more spiritual levin spoke of his dead mother her death and funeral of an unhappy love affair and finally of his religious convictions as a rule jealously guarded as a secret and soon they were launched on an eager discussion of religion it struck one it struck two and they were still talking while nystrom slept soundly his arms on the table and his head resting on his arms a dense cloud of tobacco smoke filled the counting-house and robbed the gas flames of their brilliancy the seven candles of the seven-armed candelabrum had burnt down to the sockets and the table presented a dismal sight one or two glasses had lost their stems the stained tablecloth was covered with cigar ash the floor was strewn with matches the daylight was breaking through the chinks of the shutters its shafts peered the cloud of smoke and drew cabalistic figures on the tablecloth between the two champions of their faith busily engaged in re-editing the augsburg confession they were now talking with hissing voices their brains were numbed their words sounded dry the tension was relaxing in spite of their diligent recourse to the bottle they tried to whip up their souls into an ecstasy but their efforts grew weaker and weaker the spirit had died out of their conversation they only exchanged meaningless words the stupefied brains which had been whirling around like teetotems slackened in their speed and finally stopped one thought alone filled their minds they must go to bed if they did not want to loathe the sight of each other they must be alone nystrom was shaken into consciousness levin embraced charles nicholas and took the opportunity to pocket three of his cigars the heights which they had scaled were too sublime to allow them to talk of the bill just yet they parted the host let his guests out he was alone he opened the shutters daylight poured into the room he opened the window the cool sea breeze swept through the narrow street one side of which was already illuminated by the rising sun it struck four he listened to that wonderful striking only heard by the poor wretch who yearns for the day on a bed of sickness or sorrow even long street east the street of vice of filth and brawls lay in the early morning sun still desolate and pure falk felt deeply unhappy he was disgraced he was lonely he closed window and shutters and as he turned round and beheld the state of the room he at once began setting it straight he picked up the cigar ends and threw them into the grate he cleared the table 
swept the room, dusted it, and put everything in its place. He washed his face and hands, and brushed his hair. A policeman might have thought him a murderer, intent on effacing all traces of his crime. But all the while he thought, clearly, firmly, and logically. When he had straightened the room and himself, he formed a resolution, long brooded over, but now to be carried into effect. He would wipe away the disgrace which had fallen on his family. He would rise in the world and become a well-known and influential man. He would begin a new life. He would keep his reputation unstained, and he would make his name respected. He felt that only a great ambition could help him to keep his head erect after the blow he had received tonight. Ambition had been latent in his heart. It had been awakened, and henceforth it should rule his life. Quite sober now, he lighted a cigar, drank a brandy, and went upstairs, quietly, gently, so as not to disturb his sleeping wife. End of chapter 4